Well, take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, as we continue our study uh, through this very um, unique book uh, in God's Word, one that has uh, caused much confusion uh, in the life of the church over the years. What do we do with the book of Ecclesiastes? How are we to understand this book? Well, tonight we're going to learn that life is not an idiot's tale. Life is not an idiot's tale. It's not the tale of an idiot. And those of you that uh, are Shakespeare fans, you've heard that phrase before. Um, I'm not claiming to be a Shakespeare fan. Uh, I typically couldn't understand a thing that guy said when I was in class and was being asked to analyze his writings. I'm like, I have no idea what he meant to say. I don't know what he means by this. How would I know unless I asked the guy, you know? I'm just speculating here, but we know that ever since his death back in the 1600s, William Shakespeare has been widely regarded as the greatest writer in the English language and the world's preeminent playwright. His plays have been translated in every major language and have been performed more often than those of any other playwright. One of his uh, most well-known plays is called Macbeth. Anybody ever read Macbeth or seen Macbeth? Okay, three of you, great. Oh, four of you, okay. Five of you, see, now you're coming out. You're just admitting it, okay, all you Shakespeare fans. Um, Well, Macbeth is one of his darkest and most powerful tragedies. It tells the story of a brave Scottish general named Macbeth who receives a prophecy from a trio of witches that one day he's going to become the king of Scotland. Well, this just causes him to be consumed with ambition and spurred on by, the, uh, spurred on by his wicked wife. Uh, he decides to murder the reigning king and take the throne by force, which results in all sorts of guilt and paranoia. And you remember the, the washing of the hands, right? And trying to get the blood off the hands and it could never come off. And uh, some of the things, uh, some of the parallels there, biblical parallels, Uh, in the story, uh, as they are forced to commit more and more crimes and murders to protect themselves, which ultimately leads to their death, when the son of the king that Macbeth assassinated raises an army and he leads an invasion to overthrow Macbeth in Scotland. And uh, before they arrive there in Scotland, Macbeth receives news that Lady Macbeth has killed herself which causes him to sink into a deep, dark despair and deliver one of Shakespeare's most uh, famous soliloquies called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Sounds similar to what we've been studying in Ecclesiastes, right? And it really just reflects on the brevity and the meaninglessness of life. Listen to the words of Shakespeare. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And so here the audience um, comes to hear Macbeth's final conclusion that life is just fraught with problems and it's devoid of any true meaning. 
And our days on this earth are short like a candle that can be quickly blown out. And he compares life here to an actor who plays some insignificant role in this senseless play and then disappears off the stage never to be heard again. And ultimately, Macbeth decided here that life was just a vast empty nothingness, a senseless tale told by an idiot. Again, does that sound familiar? Uh, Sounds very much like the conclusions of an actual king who lived many years before the fictional Macbeth. His name is King Solomon, and we have his conclusions recorded uh, here about life in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we've already studied the first half, really chapters 1 through 7, uh, or 1 through 6, Uh, really his personal memoirs where he's painting this very dark, depressing picture of of life. And after years of foolishly searching to fill the hole in his heart with worldly pursuits and worldly pleasures, the the wisest man in the world, how about this, the wisest man who ever lived, confessed that he lacked the wisdom to figure out life on his own apart from God. And now we're in the last part, the second part of his memoirs, where he describes how he wised up. Really, he was wise enough to know that he didn't have the wisdom it took to figure out life. And he came to the conclusion that there were just things in life that were beyond his understanding, which should drive us to look somewhere beyond ourselves, beyond our own reason for answers to life's tough questions. And that somewhere is, of course, above the sun, right? He's been talking about everything under the sun, right? Life under the sun, life here on earth. He says you need to look above the sun where God sits enthroned in the heavens and his sovereignty reigns over all things with perfect wisdom and justice. And a foolish person, an idiot, right? That's what an idiot is. It's a fool. A, A foolish person, an idiot, denies that there's a God and thinks there is, uh, that, that life is just a series of random events with no rhyme or reason that ultimately they're in control of their destiny. And I think that kind of thinking leads really to disillusionment and despair. It's that you, you come to the fact, you know, life is just a tale told by an idiot. It, may, it makes no sense. And that's exactly what Solomon experienced until he began to rightly apply the wisdom that God had so graciously given him. And we saw back in chapter 7 uh, how he listed a series of Proverbs in verses 1 through, 1 through 14, um, basically offering us godly counsel for life. And then he shows the results of, of that wisdom when it's properly applied to everyday lives in verses 15 through 29. And that's where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Now, here in chapter 8, he reaffirms that while human wisdom can't answer all of life's questions and solve all of life's mysteries, it is an invaluable asset to life, and a wise person is, at the end of the day, better off than a fool. So even though wisdom has limitations, it's better to be wise than a fool. Specifically, a wise person knows how to submit to people who are in control and also knows how to submit to things which are outside their control. They know how to submit to people who are in control, and also they know how to submit to things which are outside their control. In other words, we're going to see here in chapter 8 how Solomon begins by affirming the benefits of wisdom, 
and then closes by acknowledging the limits of wisdom. And so if you're taking notes tonight, I've just got two points, and, and really this chapter is, is kind of loosely connected here, and so I've just broken it into two halves. We have, first of all, in verses 1 through 9, a submission, a wise person or wisdom leads you to submission to people who are in control. Okay, so a wise person submits to people who are in control. Secondly, in verses 10 through 17, we're going to see how a wise person submits to things which are outside of our control. Okay? So first of all, let's notice how wisdom uh, causes us to submit or teaches us or leads us to submit to people who are in control. Verse 1. Solomon says, who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. And so Solomon begins here by asking some rhetorical questions. He's just uh, wanting, to, uh, he's wanting to let us know that even though human wisdom does have its limitations, uh, it always comes up short, it, it was still better to be a wise man than a fool. And for starters, he says, why? Because a man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. In other words, wisdom affects a, person, a person's physical appearance. It causes their countenance to glow. There's a radiance about them. Really, just a difference. That's, you can tell maybe just from uh, your countenance whether you're a, a wise person or a foolish person. Um, there's a couple people that stick out in my mind. One is a, a dear saint who went to be with the Lord a number of years ago in our church, and uh, she was diagnosed with cancer, and, and uh, I'll tell you what, she just glowed Jesus. I mean, she was just amazing. Some of you remember Ann Works, right? I mean, that woman, just, she just glowed Christ. And, and even I remember going into her house in her last few days, and there she was in the bed, and she couldn't even get out of bed. And, and you walked in, and she, her face just lit up as she was there dying. And it just showed the wisdom and how Christ had transformed her life. Just a joy to be with Pat Malden here the last couple of days in and out of the hospital and just visiting with her and seeing, you know, walking into that CCU room and her husband's there not being responsive, at least in, in the, uh, a few days ago, not responsive. And yet, even though she was overwhelmed, right, with anxiety and fear and what's going to happen, is my husband even in there anymore, right? Uh, she just would glow uh, with joy and peace and, and uh, hope. And, and so uh, I just told her what a shining example she was to all of us. I'm just a godly, wise person uh, who's just learned to live their life according to the wisdom that God gives us in his word. And so Solomon is just commending wisdom. He says, you know what? Who's like the wise man? There's no one like him. His, his countenance even shows. He doesn't have this stern no face you know, about him, right? He's, he's happy. He's joyful because he's at peace uh, because he's living according to wisdom. Now, notice what he goes on to say in verses 2, 3, and 4. He says, I say... Keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases, since the word of the king is authoritative. Who will say to him, what are you doing? Now here Solomon is obviously writing from the perspective of a king. He was a king, right? And uh, he shows, showed here how wisdom was critical to interacting with a king in order to avert 
his wrath. Um, we know that Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. Listen to a couple things he said to his son. Proverbs chapter 14, verse uh, 35. The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is towards him who acts shamefully. In other words, so if you want to have favor with the king, you need to act wisely. Uh, he went on to say in chapter 16, verse 14, the fury of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. In other words, you don't want to get on the king's bad side, right? You don't want to experience the wrath of a king, uh, but a wise man will appease that wrath. Chapter 20, verse 2, the terror of a king is like the growing, growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. So again, we're back here in Ecclesiastes 8, and, and Solomon here is just talking about uh, how a wise person gets authority. They get authority. And uh, they, they, they understand uh, the, the importance of submitting to God-ordained authority of, of kings and rulers. Again, back in, in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21, listen to what Solomon says here. He says, my son, fear the Lord and the king. So two people you're supposed to fear, two people you're supposed to honor, two people you're supposed to respect. That's God, first and foremost, and then the king, right? Those that God has ordained and put over you. Romans chapter 13, uh, you guys are familiar with that passage, I'm sure, uh, where Paul talks about how God ordained government for us to submit to. Romans 13, 1 Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. In other words, if you resist human authority, you're ultimately resisting divine authority, right? So young people, for example, when you disrespect and dishonor your parents, right, you're ultimately disrespecting and dishonoring God, right? When we dishonor and disrespect our government officials, ultimately we're dishonoring, disrespecting God because he placed them over us, either whether they're good or bad, right? He's sovereign over that. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Talking about the, how God has um, delegated the authority to kill, right, to punish sin, even if that means the death penalty, uh, to human authority. Uh, verse 7, render to all what is due them, Tax to whom taxes do, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And then probably the other key passage when it comes to understanding and submitting to authority is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. 
And so we've got all these verses in the scriptures about uh, a, a proper understanding of God's authority. And if you're wise, right, if you're wise, you, you get that. And a fool doesn't get that. We, we, we see a lot of foolish people on the, news, on the nightly news, right? Look, look around, not just in our country, but maybe even around the world, where you see uh, uh, people, citizens, rising up against governments, even if they are wicked and evil regimes, um, but they're opposing that authority, and, and uh, they're, they're throwing stuff at police officers, and they're beating up police officers, and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, that, listen, that's a wrong way to approach the situation, right? That's a foolish way to, to address injustice. That's not the way the Bible says to address it. Um, there's a popular slogan today, right? Question authority. You've seen that? Question authority. That's just, that's just the, the culture in which we live where, where we criticize and we demean and we even antagonize authority figures. But a wise person, according to Solomon here, uh, understands that it's imperative to obey and honor those in authority over us even when they may be treating us harshly and unfairly. Look down at verse 9 here, Ecclesiastes 8, verse 9. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his what? To his hurt. So the implication here is that uh, oftentimes leaders, whether they be kings or dictators or presidents or husbands or parents, uh, coaches, teachers, bosses, police officers, right? Sometimes they rule or exercise their authority in a hurtful way, uh, in a wrong way, and it hurts people. And uh, they rule with an iron fist, if you will, but what we're learning here as we're looking at these passages is that we still have an obligation to be loyal to them. Uh, obviously, up to the point where they tell us to sin, right? When the government tells you to sin, you can say, you know, we're going to obey God rather than men, right? Your parents tell you to sin, you say, I'm going to obey God rather than you, right? Your, 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 your husband tells you to sin, right? You can say, listen, I'm going to obey God rather than men, right? So that, so that applies, Okay. But, but generally speaking, we need to be like the Israelites who took an oath before God to honor and obey and serve Solomon. Back in 1 Chronicles 29-24, uh, they took an oath, and that may be what he was talking about here in verse 2, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. You made an oath, right, to, to obey me and to honor me and to submit to me. And so he goes on here. He says, do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? All that to say that a wise person knows the proper decorum in the presence of, of a king or in the presence of someone in authority. They know it's not wise just to rush out of the king's presence. Um, either to quit their job or to rashly cut ties with the king and join some movement against him, or maybe even just, guess what, kids just you know, storming out of the room because you're done talking with your parents, right? That's not appropriate. Uh, do not be in a hurry to leave him. 
don't, don't join an uprising against them. It's, it's not wise to, to cross a king since he has absolute authority in those days, right? Uh, the king was answerable to no one, didn't like to be challenged by their subject, and he had the power to do whatever he wanted to do. And so it wasn't smart to champion some cause which was contrary to the king's wishes since that would put you at odds with the king. You remember the story of Esther. We studied that a number of years ago when she was uh, told by Mordecai uh, right, to go into the presence of the king and, and appeal uh, to King Ahasuerus uh, to uh, redeem the Jews or to, 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 to free the Jews from this, from this um, promise that, that uh, the evil Haman had, had put on them, right? And what did she say? If I perish, I perish. In other words, she knew you didn't just waltz into the presence of the king with some request. You, you had to wait to be invited into the presence of the king, right? So this is what Solomon's saying. Listen, if you're wise, okay, you know uh, how to act in the presence of an authority. Now, something that came to my mind when I was studying all this, and, and, and I can honestly tell you I didn't come to a conclusion but I just wanted to throw it out there for you to think about, to chew on, because it's always really been something I've wrestled with, and I wonder what I would have done if I was a pastor back in the 1700s during the American Revolution. You think about that. Don't give me your answer. Okay, I don't want to start a fight right now and a big debate about whether that was right or wrong, and, and, uh, but is, that, is it ever right to take up arms against a, a corrupt government? Right? Or does the Bible say you submit to them? So we're the American, you know, there's, I, I, there's a picture I'll never forget uh, I've seen of, of a pastor uh, who was wearing this robe, like kind of a clerical robe, uh, on Sunday morning, and he was in his pulpit, and the picture's from behind the pulpit, and, and, he, and the picture is him taking off his robe, and you can see uh, his uniform underneath. He, in other words, he, he preached a message to his people and said, I'm no longer going to be your pastor, I'm going to go serve in the, in the revolution. I'm like, okay, that pastor really thought that through, okay? He's saying, I'm, I'm going to rise up against the, the evil government of, of England, right? And I'm going to fight against them. And I thought, how did that guy come to that conclusion? How did he justify that with Romans 13? And how about this one? How about the Christians that were part of the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler? That's a whole other thing. You know, this is like the whole thing about who is that chick in the Old Testament that lied? Rahab? Remember her? And when, was she right to lie? She lied. Was that right or wrong? Right? And, and you know, is it ever right to lie? So is it, was, it, was it right for Dietrich Bonhoeffer to be part of the, uh, the assassination attempt of Adolf Hitler? So something to chew on, to think about. If you guys have an answer, let me know afterwards, okay? Because uh, I'd be curious to see what you say. I mean, I'm still in process on all that. But notice verse 5. He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. So again, those who obey the king have nothing to fear. That's what Romans 13 says. Well, if you don't want to fear the the authorities, then don't break the law, right? And the only reason why your heart jumps when you're going down 105 and you see a police officer is because you're breaking the law. Right? Because you're speeding, right? But if you're just going the speed limit, you see a police officer, you're like, like Kelly's really cute. She'll, she'll be like, she points them all out to me. Hey, honey, there's a police officer. Hey, honey, there's a police officer. And I'm like, so? 
I'm going the speed limit. Why do I need to know that? You know, it doesn't. But if she says there's a police officer, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm afraid. I'm like, oh no. But the point is, if you do the right thing, you don't have to be afraid. A wise person obeys the king's commands. You don't need to fear. A wise person always knows the proper thing to say and do, and the proper time to say and do it. Don't you love people like that? That they just always seem to know just the right thing to say. And, and the right time to say it. Um, we know there's a, there's a right and wrong way of saying things and doing things. And there's, a, there's a right and wrong time as well. But what Solomon is saying is wisdom gives us the ability to size up a situation and act accordingly. For example, when uh, there was a... I could just think of a couple scenarios when I was a youth pastor, when I had a very um, a complicated situation where, uh, for example, there was um, two brothers who at one point had uh, run away from home. Uh, they weren't submitting to their mom and dad, and they decided we're just going to jump in our van and we're going to head out and uh, do our own thing. And there were kids going to the youth group, professing Christians, and I'll just be honest, I was hacked off. I was hacked off with these guys. They knew better than this. What were they doing? What a bad testimony for Christ. And they knew. Blah, blah, blah. So I decided, I found out where they were, and they were parked on some cul-de-sac, sleeping out, camping out in their trailer. Or I shouldn't know, their, their, their little uh, VW bus, right? And so, man, I, was, I said, I know, I'm, I'm just going to drive down there early. I'm going to just bang on their door one morning. I'm going to go in there. I'm just going to confront them. And uh, so I called a dad, a really uh, godly dad in the ministry, before I did this. And I said, hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think? And he says, you know what I think you should do? I think you should go buy a box of donuts and uh, show up there early in the morning, just knock on their door and ask them if you can come in and talk and share some donuts with them and just kind of see what's going on and why they left and, Right? I thought, dude, you are so wise. Why didn't I think of that, right? Here I was this young you know, youth pastor. I was going to set these kids straight. And another classic example, I'll never forget this, was there was a, a young man in our ministry, and um, he had been struggling with some, uh, using some drugs, and uh, we were addressing that issue in his life. And, but then I found out through another student that his dad was doing drugs too, which we didn't know. And so I thought, oh, great, how do I deal with this? You know, because so I go say, well, hey, I heard you're doing, well, who told you that? And, well, it's this kid. And, you know, it had just been a mess, right? So I went to one of our elders and I said, hey, this is the situation. What should I do? Um, he said, well, how about this? You go over to the house and you sit down with that dad and you say, listen, I'm very concerned about your son. It seems like he can't kick this habit. He's been smoking dope, and, and we don't know why he keeps doing this, and, and we've thought of everything, and uh, we've been trying to help this guy, and he, he wants to get, knock it off, but he, he keeps doing it. So one of the things I, I just have to ask you is, is oftentimes, you know, the Bible talks about that kids struggle with the same sins their parents struggle with. And is that something that you and your wife have ever struggled with? Is that something he's ever seen you do? You know, and approach it that way instead of accusing him, right? Confronting him, saying, is that anything you've ever struggled with? Is that something? And so I did that, and I sat down, and I talked to this guy at his kitchen table, and he said, you know, yeah, that's something that I've struggled with in the past, and, and, uh, but that's something I don't, I'm not dealing with anymore. And, 
And so I said, oh, that's fine. It's good news. I'm glad to hear that. It's, it's, it's um, you know, uh, I, just need, I just need to ask that question. And so anyway, we're going to keep praying for your son. And I, I um, excused myself. And I said, I got to go. And so I walked out down the sidewalk and I was walking toward my car and I turned around and the guy was following me. And I turned around and says, hey, is everything okay? He said, Ken, I wasn't telling you the truth. I said, I, right now I'm doing cocaine. And uh, he just broke down sobbing and just hugged me and just was like sobbing like a big baby in my arms, you know, because he was so thankful to be able to finally confess it to someone, right? And uh, I thought, how wise was that, right? Instead of just walking in there going, hey, man, I heard you're doing, right? But just to, to approach it in a wise way, knowing what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and uh, just to see the fruit that came from that wise counsel, right, that I was given um, by that elder. And uh, those, two, uh, those two men are men I still stay in contact today because I respect them so much, uh, just because of the wisdom that they, they have and the way they live their lives, Notice verse 7, if no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? So while wisdom gives us the ability to size up a situation and act accordingly, you can't always tell how those things are going to work out, right? You don't know. Why? Because we don't know the future. And so again, here we see a little bit of, uh, again, the hinting at the limitations of wisdom. You could be the smartest guy on the planet and, and still not anticipate something that's come, coming down the pike, Right? You thought you were being wise, but you, there's no way you could have anticipated that. Um, even the wisest person alive doesn't know for sure what will happen or when it will happen. Only God does. And God has sovereignly ordained what will happen and when it will happen, which none of us can know ahead of time. And the greatest illustration of that is our death. Look at verse 8. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war and evil will not deliver those who practice it. That word for wind uh, is sometimes translated as spirit. Talking about the spirit leaving you, right? No man has authority to restrain the the spirit, in other words, or the authority over the day of death. Uh, none of us knows when we will die or how we will die. And none of us control, no, none of us can control when we die or how we will die. Notice, uh, look at chapter 9, verse 12. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Talking about death there, man does not know his time. I don't know if any of you get World Magazine. Uh, it's a great Christian uh, magazine, basically looking at the news from a Christian perspective, um, kind of like a Christian Newsweek, Christian Time magazine. If you don't have it, you never heard of it, get it. It's really, really good. But they used to have a section uh, every month or every couple weeks in their magazine that was simply titled Man Does Not Know His Time or Man Knows Not His Time. And it was basically an obituary. It was all the famous people or well-known people that had died in the last two weeks or that last month. And it was taken from this verse, Ecclesiastes 9, 12. So no matter how, you try, no matter how hard you try, whether it's getting a discharge from the military Right? In the middle of war, 
or practicing some kind of wickedness, you can't postpone or avoid death. The idea here is you're in the military, you're in the middle of a war, and you're like, I don't want to die, so I'm going to get discharged, right? Well, even if you get discharged from the military, that doesn't ensure you're not going to die, right? Or I'm going to do something, I'm going to, do, I'm going to have some evil practice, I'm going to do something that's somehow going to postpone my death, or, or I can avoid death for some time. You can't play that game. It's impossible. Someone said it this way, God has allotted a certain number of days for us to live. We can't go beyond the boundary that he has set no matter how much bran we eat. (laughs) I I remember hearing a joke about um, a husband and wife and, and the wife was always on her husband about eating right and you know, she was making, you know, made them eat brand muffins every morning and, you know, eat healthy and exercise and get out there and do all this kind of stuff. And they, they both died and went to heaven. And uh, there was just a smorgasbord everywhere. Like all you can eat food all the time and you never got fat and all this kind of stuff. And, and so the, the, they were walking through the smorgasbord the first morning and, and, and the husband said, man, we would have been here a lot sooner if it wasn't for you and your dumb brand muffins. <laughs> This guy goes on, listen, this is good. He says, you can't go beyond the boundary that is set no matter how much bran we eat. Eating right is a good and prudent thing to do. So are exercise, regular exercise and good sleep because they affect the quality of a person's life. The quantity, however, is already determined by God. Well, this dilemma of death, as he's thinking about this in verse 8, leads him to Solomon now to muse or to think about other things which are outside of our control. Our death is outside of our control. Wouldn't you agree? It's outside of our control. What are some other things that are outside of our control? Well, specifically the iniquities, or I should say the inequities and the mysteries of life. And that's where he comes to the second section, starting in verse 10, uh, where he talks about how wisdom leads us to submit to things which are outside of our control, right? We, first of all, submit to those who are in control, our authorities, right? But now we need to submit to things which are outside of our control. And he, and he talks about the inequities of life and the mysteries of life. The inequities of life are in verses 10 through 15. Notice he says, So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. So it, it seems like Solomon is just kind of reflecting on some of the funerals that he attended during his lifetime. And he'd been to some funerals uh, of people who had kept up the appearance of being religious or, and spiritual. They had gone to the temple, that's the holy place that he's talking about there. But their lives were characterized by wickedness. But you would have never known that by listening to the eulogy. You ever been to a funeral like that? Right? Where you really know the guy or the gal, and somebody's up there eulogizing them, or like, who is they talking about? It's not the guy I knew. Right? They make the people sound just like these saints, right, uh, at their funeral when they were just wicked, ungodly people. And everybody says all this nice stuff about what a great person they were as if they forgot what a jerk they were, right? And he's saying, well, that, that, that doesn't make sense. That's, that's futile. It's like people forget the guy's wickedness. And then look at verse 11. 
Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. That, folks, is an indictment of the American justice system right there. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. All the delays uh, in the trials and the punishments of criminals, it just promotes lawlessness. People think, I can get away with murder. Literally, right? And all the loopholes and the postponements, I think, make offenders more brazen, uh, more likely to break the law, and they reason that they can get away with it, or, or if they don't get away with it, at least they can get off with a light sentence, right? Now, granted, it's important that we guarantee people a, a fair trial, but it's also possible to overprotect the criminal at the expense of justice and at the expense of the, the, the victim. And so all that to say, impartial Prompt justice serves as a deterrent to crime. Tell you what, I'm proud that I live in Texas, that we still do the death penalty thing, capital punishment. That's biblical. It's right. It honors God. And, uh, and unfortunately, it takes so long, right? I tell you what, the crime would be cut in half if that was something that happened like, like listen, in some of the Arab countries, you get caught stealing and you get your hand whacked off. Guess what? There's not a whole lot of people stealing over there. You say, well, why does God postpone judgment then? If that's true, if that's a true principle, well, God is guilty of doing the same thing. He postpones judgment. There's not often, uh, sometimes there's not the swift punishment that we would think he would exact if he truly hates sin that much. Why does he let people just keep on sinning? Well, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, this is interesting. It's talking about the coming of the Lord. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lessons, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, there are going to always be naysayers going, yeah, right, give me a break. Jesus is coming back? God's going to return and judge the world? Well, how come it hasn't happened yet? Everything keeps on going the same way ever since creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word and present heavens and earth, excuse me, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. In other words, don't get all comfortable thinking, oh, I got plenty of time to sin, right? You don't know when this is going to happen. But the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is, what, patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work will be burned up. So while God's patience and gracious delaying of retribution may lead to greater disobedience, right? Because people have more time to sin, right? It in no way diminishes the certainty of final judgment. They're still going to be punished. But this, again, was was something that baffled uh, Solomon. 
He, he was baffled by God's apparent lack of justice when it came to punishing sinners. And yet even, nevertheless, he still believed that those who feared God would fare better in the long run. Look at verse 12. He says, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life. In other words, even if a habitual criminal lives to a ripe old age, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly, but it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. In other words, he was confident, right, that the wicked person was the ultimate loser in life. At the end of the day, they've got no hope after the grave. And the way of the transgressor is hard because when, a, when an ungodly person dies, they lose everything that they've lived for and have to face the judgment of God. But when a godly person, somebody who fears the Lord dies, they still have everything they live for. Who? God. And they get him for all eternity. And uh, we know this is uh, one of the themes here uh, of, of the book of Ecclesiastes, this concept of fearing God. Notice he says it three times here. Still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Um, he said this back in chapter 3, verse 14. I know that everything... God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it for God has so worked that men should fear him. Chapter 5, verse 7. For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. And of course, he's going to say it in um, chapter 12, verse 13. The conclusion when all has been said is what? Fear God and keep his commandments. So, Talking about fearing God here, honoring God, respecting God, submitting to God. That's what it means to fear God. Not walk around being scared of God. That's not his point. And then look at verse 14. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. Again, another enigma. He's wrestling here with another uh, enigma of life, another uh, inequity of life that, that, that uh, as a general rule, God rewards obedience and he punishes disobedience. But Solomon was saying here he saw exceptions to the rule which confused him and disturbed him. He saw, he saw wicked people prospering and he saw righteous people suffering. It's like, the, like uh, Asaph in Psalm 73, right? When he began to envy the wicked, he said, hey, I've kept myself pure for nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm suffering here, trying to live a holy and pure life, honor you, and I'm suffering, and then all these unsaved people around me, they're just having the time of their lives. They don't have a care in the world. It was the same struggle that uh, Asaph had. Solomon was wrestling through that. So how do you, how do you deal with that stuff? How, how do you deal with the fact that godly missionaries get murdered and, and, and their murderers go scot-free? How do you deal with the fact that, that, that uh, a family is, 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 is killed in a, a head-on collision with a drunk driver and, and, and the whole family dies and the, and the drunk guy walks away without a scratch? How, how do you deal with that stuff, that injustice, that inequity of life? That's a problem in our minds. 
Well, hopefully you don't think this is trite, but I think it's extremely wise. We're talking about wisdom here. Notice verse 15. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Solomon wasn't saying, well, you know what you do? You just go out and get yourself smashed. That's how you deal with it, right? You can't deal with the inequities of life, so you just go get yourself drunk, you shoot up with drugs, you go out, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Kind of a, kind of a hedonistic lifestyle, this unbridled, rampant, indulgent, uh, sin, sinful lifestyle. This was the mindset of the rich fool. Remember him in Luke chapter 12? He, he had, a, had a bumper crop, he tore down all his barns and built new ones, and he thought he was set for life. He said, Let's, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, Right? I'm just going to indulge myself. That's not at all what he's talking about here. He's talking about, uh, he, he's encouraging us here to enjoy our lives in the face of the enigmas and iniquities that, sur- uh, inequities that surround us. And again, if you grabbed a little outline on your way in or you've kept your outline, you know this is kind of the, the, the theme that I've highlighted in our outline of this, this whole concept of enjoying life. Um. And we said how Ecclesiastes, at first glance, comes across as very depressing. Like, dude, this guy's got a problem. And when really, it's ultimately a celebration of life. And, and you have to be discerning as you go through this to, to, to pick that out. But it's pretty clear that this is where he's going. In chapter 2, verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that it is from the hand of God, for he... For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Chapter 5, verse 18. Here it is. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. And then here we see it again in chapter 8, verse 15. He's saying, listen, I commend pleasure to you. Eat and drink and be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. In other words, life is a gift from God. And, and, And every day we experience simple joys and pleasures that we should receive as gifts from God's good and gracious hand. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, right? So you've been liking the weather? It's good weather, huh? Enjoy that. Yeah, there's people getting shot and killed all around the world. And, and we could sit in, our, in our front of our computers and watch all this stuff and our TVs and get depressed. Or we can say, you know what? I'm going to go outside and enjoy the weather. You say, well, that's kind of trite. You're kind of selfish, self-serving. Don't you care? No, you care, but you get life in balance, right? You get perspective. Do you enjoy a good meal? Right? Nothing wrong with that. God wants, God gives us all things to enjoy. Good movie, right? Enjoy life. See, the secret to not becoming bitter and cynical and pessimistic and jaded and overwhelmed by life's injustices is to enjoy all that there is to enjoy, even in a sin-cursed world. There's a lot of good things about this world, even though it's cursed. And so Solomon is commending that. He's saying, hey, listen, uh, enjoy life. Don't, don't take everything so seriously, right? Relax. And go eat a steak. 
right? Go watch a movie. Go walk down the road, walk down the beach holding your wife's hand, you know? Go outside and throw the football with your kid, you know? Just enjoy life. So those are the inequities of life. But then notice at the end here, he talks about the mysteries of life. Again, we're talking about things that are just, that that are out of our control, outside of our control. Listen, what's going on around the world? It's outside of our control. So a wise person, what do you do? Do you get all angst up about it or you just say, you know what? I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to get involved in how I can get involved, but I'm going to also enjoy life. I'm going to let it get me down. How about the mysteries of life? There's mysteries along with the inequities. There's mysteries. Verse 16, when I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. So here's Solomon, again, the wisest man who ever lived, devoted his whole life to figuring out all the answers to life's questions, and he realized that at the end of the day, he could have stayed up in his entire life, never slept, right? Worked his tail off, right? But he realized that, listen, much of life has remained a puzzle, and I, and I, can't, I can't see how all the pieces fit together. No matter how hard you try, there, there are just some mysteries in life that you'll never be able to solve. You'll never be able to make sense of life. And that's where you come to the crossroad, and you've got two ways you can go at that point. When you, when you come to the place where Solomon is at the, in these last two verses where he says, listen, life, a lot of life is still a puzzle to me. I can't figure out how, the, how it all fits together. You've got one or two options. One option is you can c- conclude there is no God. And there's no point in our existence or to our existence. And so you take the approach that so many people in our world take is life sucks and then you die. Right? That's how a lot of people live. Life sucks and then you die. That's one option. Or the other option is you can conclude that there is a God who for some reason that's beyond our human understanding designed life with the inequities, with the mysteries, with the confusion, with the evil, right? Why? To humble us before him and to cause us to seek him in wonder, love, and praise. Where we acknowledge that he is so far beyond us, that he's worthy to be worshiped and honored and obeyed. And listen to how some people in the Bible came to this conclusion. Job 11, verse 7 Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls us an assembly, who can restrain him? For he knows false men and he sees iniquity without investigating. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. (laughs) In other words, you're going to be waiting around a long time to see a wild donkey give birth to a man. And, and an idiot, right? That's us, right? Uh, to become intelligent. That's humbling. That's humbling. That's Job's point. Job was humbled before God. How about Isaiah? Isaiah 55. You're probably familiar with this passage. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. 
For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then Romans 11, I love this. This is really the ultimate response to God's wisdom. We're talking about wisdom here. Notice Paul in Romans 11, verse 33, after this is, his, this is the conclusion of talking about God's uh, amazing plan of a salvation and redemption of man. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For, he who has known the, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the point. Is that God, God's ways are incomprehensible. It's, it, it's beyond our finite ability to completely understand or figure out the ways of an infinite God. And that should just put us on our face before him, that we desperately need him because apart from him, life will never make sense, apart from relationship with him. Philip Ryken, guy I've been quoting a lot from because he's really good at this book of Ecclesiastes, he said, quote, some people expect to have all the answers. And when they fail to find them, they get angry with God about what is happening or not happening in their lives. It is wiser for us to humbly admit that we are finite beings with fallen minds and that therefore we are incapable of understanding everything that happens. Rather than getting frustrated with all the things that we do not know about the world or do not understand about the ways of God, we are invited to rest content with our own limitations and to worship God for his superior wisdom. And then he quotes Isaac Watts at the end of one of his many hymns. He said this, Where reason fails with all her powers, their faith prevails and love adores. So when we come to the end of ourselves, the end of our reason, our ability to understand, right, that's where faith prevails. That's where you just got it. Faith just has to pick up and believe, right? And accept. And then love adores. And then, you just, and then you're caught up in, in worship of how great and awesome God is and how wise he is. So much wiser than we'll ever be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the book of Ecclesiastes and just some of the things that seem so obscure at first, but then when we begin to go a little deeper, they make so much sense. And and yet we confess, Lord, there's so much about this book, there's so much about life that we don't understand. And we're just humbled and convicted this evening, Lord, at how finite we are. And uh, while we have wisdom in Christ, Lord, we are definitely um, ahead of the next guy who doesn't have Christ in, in, in figuring out what life is all about. But there's just so many things that we still scratch our heads about, Lord, and we don't know. And we really won't ever know until we get to heaven. But I pray that this would just all, all cause us to be more humble, more broken, more dependent upon you. And uh, Lord, just to, to learn how to rest in you, learn, learn how to trust in you, learn how to worship and adore you. And Lord, practically, just how to enjoy life as the gift that you intended it to be. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.